Well, good morning and welcome as we gather again this Sunday. And it's Palm Sunday, it's the beginning of Holy Week and we are getting close to Easter. We've been in a series looking at Jesus' journey as he's moving closer and closer towards Jerusalem and his crucifixion, his death and resurrection. And we finally got to Jerusalem, this Palm Sunday, the, the entry of Jesus into the city and the response of the people. So let's read together. I'm going to be looking at the account of Jesus' entry into the city from Matthew, and it's Matthew chapter 21 and verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey, and there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What we see is in this account of Jesus' entry on Palm Sunday is at the end, this question is being raised. The, the city, the people are asking, who is this? Who could this person possibly be? There is great hope and expectation. There is this great hope that's building amongst the people. There is this hope of a coming change, ultimately a hope of a change of their circumstance. Is this the one who has come to change our circumstance? And why would they be asking that question? Because this moment has a, a, a significant historical context, a backdrop to this moment. At this point in time, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were not free. They were living under Roman control. And for almost 500 centuries, they had been under foreign rule and dominion, going all the way back to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, and now they find themselves under Roman rule. And they were holding on to this promise as the people of God that there would be this coming Messiah, this anointed one, it means, the promised one who would deliver them from the situation that they're in and save them and set them free. In this context, therefore, they're looking at this Jesus who is entering in the city and they're asking themselves, could this be the one? Who is this? Is he the promised Messiah? There is this expectation and this hope of a changed circumstance, the conditions in which they were living. And added to this heart, it's the Passover week. 
And the Passover is a, a religious celebration that the people would have every year to remind them of another time when they were in slavery, another time when they were under the control of a foreign nation. Yes, they were slaves in Egypt, remember? Under the, the rule, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And how God miraculously intervened in supernatural ways to deliver them and set them free, to bring them out, to establish them as his people, and to put them into the promised land as a nation, the nation of Israel, as God's people, living under his good reign and rule. So in this context of this historical backdrop and this religious, spiritual significance of celebration, Jesus enters, and there is this hype, and we have this great excitement and this hope of a circumstance change. That this would be their promised Messiah, their promised King, who would change their circumstance, and this changed circumstance is going to ultimately lead to their prosperity and their freedom and their joy and satisfaction. By the establishment of a new nation with a new King under His rule as His people. But if we pause for a moment and we just reflect back on the historical account in the Scriptures, what they get wrong and what they forget is they've, they've been down this road before. Israel had a history of 42 kings, and almost all of them had led Israel down a path of destruction. Almost all of them had led the people, and the people had participated with their kings in this rebellion and disobedience of God and His law, which had originally resulted in them going into captivity under the Babylonian Empire and finding themselves ultimately in their current circumstance under Roman rule. So then surely then the solution to their problem is not a change of circumstance, going back to the same things that they've done before, just moving the pieces around. Surely then the, the problem that they have is ultimately not a physical king and a physical kingdom and a nation that rules over them. Surely then they need a completely different king. They need a king who comes to establish a completely different kingdom that is so different to what they've had or experienced before. They need a king that's going to come and get to the root of the problem, get to that which has been manifesting in their rebellion and in their behavior against God that has resulted in them living as slaves under foreign dominion and power. And they need a king that can get to the root cause. They don't need another change of circumstance that can never resolve the problems and the struggles that they have in. And we should pause as we reflect on this moment to consider how different are we? Are we any different to the people of Israel? Do we not look often to our external circumstances for our internal pleasures and happiness and joy and peace and purpose and meaning? And I would say, if I reflect myself, and I reflect on the context of the community in which we live in, for many of us, we live our lives in a kingdom of comfort, or a kingdom of self. That we are looking to our circumstances, our external surroundings, to be organized in certain ways that we might have comfort. And if we're not, con if we're not convinced, just look at the current context in which we find ourselves in. We're in a lockdown, and by and large, most of the frustration or most of the anger or the disagreement or the fighting or the argument 
arguing that has occurred is rooted in a kingdom of comfort and self. That people are upset that their comforts or their securities and their pleasures are being disturbed. Or that the costs or the sacrifices they have to pay are far greater than that they're willing to pay. And it's, it's exposing to us, it's exposing the heart of true humanity, of how our self-centered selfishness, how our needs and our desires, and we hold on to gods of comfort to protect us and to ease our lives. And that we live, if we're really honest, in pursuit of these external circumstances to keep our lives orderly and at peace for its purpose. So we pursue these things. We pursue external things that are outside of us, created things that are designed by us to give us, and in the hope to give us the lives and the satisfactions that we long for. So we constantly live our lives by moving the chess pieces around the chessboard of life in hope that it will give us what we desperately desire or think that we need. Here's an example. Um, in Over the last year or two, immigration is, is a huge concern for many people. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with immigration, but our current context is showing us one thing. That we can change our circumstance. We could, we could change our location. We can go to the other side of the world, but we cannot escape the consequences and the effects of the brokenness and the, the, the fragility of creation that we are experiencing right now. No matter what country you're in, no matter where you find yourself in the world, you cannot escape it. And it's, it's showing us again the, the finiteness of who we are and the inability that we have to change things by change of location and circumstance. Think of work. For many of us, if we could just change our jobs, change our boss, if we could get a better uh, package, make more money, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But our hope is placed that we can make more money in a different circumstance, we'd have a better life. And in some senses, yes, but what is our current situation telling us? Is that if our faith and our hope is placed in those circumstances, the, eco the economies of the world, the systems that we've put in place, the industries, all the things, the companies that we are involved in or look to, are currently being shaken to their core and for many are collapsing tragedy. But what it's showing us again is that we can move and change and keep trying to look to these external things to set up our lives, but ultimately they cannot do what we long for or what we desperately need. The answer that we're looking for isn't found in the change of circumstance. And if our current situation that we face in the world today is showing us a couple of things, that's one thing it's showing us is that we can't place our faith and hope in creative things. They are temporal, they are fragile, and we'll all be affected by their inabilities. Another thing that I've been reminded of as I reflect over this time is that I'm not in control of my life. We as humanity are not in control of creation. And there's a clear message that we have to be confronted with at this time, is that we are finite human beings who are not in control. And what we need, as the people of Israel were asking, who is this? Who is this king? 
Who is this? Is he the promised one? And what we are in need of on this Palm Sunday is to be reminded again that there is a king. A king that is coming and he's established a kingdom that he's in complete control of. A kingdom in which he is renewing and he's restoring and he's working all things to be made perfect and new. There is a king in this kingdom who's able to deal with the deepest fundamental issues of creation and humanity and resolve them. And he doesn't resolve them by changing our circumstances. Our locations and what we're experiencing now might not change. And the world as we know it might be changed significantly and we might live with these stresses and these pressures and these heartaches and these sorrows and these pains for a long time to come. So what we need is, is a bigger perspective. What we need is, is a king who is able to fix these problems. And the reality is, at a macro level, the root of all our problems that we are experiencing in the world today, where we see the death, where we see the brokenness, where we see the destruction, is all rooted in sin. If we reflect Romans 3, Romans 3 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5 says that sin entered the world and as a result, death entered the world and now reigns. That we experience personally, internally, we experience relationally, we experience the sea in creation, socially, economically. We see the destruction and death of this world that is finite and breaking down. And it's sin that has come to destroy. Romans 8, significant passage at this time. Romans 8 says all of creation is crying out as if it's in the middle of childbirth, looking forward and longing for a saviour to be delivered from the pains of the destructiveness of sin that has on the creation in which we live. And you may have heard this over the while, but there is this truth that there is a disease, there is a virus that is infecting the world and has always infected the world. And it's called sin and it's far greater than the devastating consequences of COVID. 19. There will be another economic collapse in the future. There will be another virus that comes along. The world will be subject to the frailty and the effects and the destructiveness of sin. And we need a king who's able to deal with sin. We need a king who's able to establish a new kingdom where he is working to make all things new. And this is the news of Easter as we look forward now. At the beginning on, on Palm Sunday is Jesus is announcing himself as this king. Sadly, the people of Israel don't realize it and they crucify him five days later. And my call to us this morning is as we look to the most significant moment in all of history is the death and resurrection of Jesus, that moment of where he deals with sin finally, fully and completely is that we would be reminded this morning again of the good news of who this king is. And, and this account is, is a reminder to us when we ask the question, when we look around us, who is this Jesus? And I was going to share four things briefly with us that we could go away and discuss, uh, pray over, meditate on, and be encouraged by. Firstly, Jesus is a divine king. There is no king like Jesus. He is God incarnate. 
God in the flesh. In verse 3 of our passage, we see the manifestation of the glory of God. As a man, he's divinely orchestrating all of this, that there is a donkey and a colt, that at a certain time and a certain place will be made available. And he instructs his disciples, he says to them, go there and take it. And if someone asks what you're doing, tell them that the Lord needs them. Verse 3. That is a self-proclamation to divinity. That he's using the word Lord. It's not a title as of a, of a master or a teacher. It's, it's the, in the original language, it's the word, the Greek word for God. That's what they used for God. And Jesus is explicitly showing, saying and demonstrating in this moment here, that he's not just a mere king. That he is God himself. I mean, for two years up to this point, he's been traveling around preaching. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing miracles and signs and wonders, all to demonstrate the sole purpose of who he is. That he is God himself in the flesh. At his word, people are healed. At his word, storms are stilled. That he has power like no other. He is not some other king or some other teacher. That we might look this morning with absolute joy and peace and comfort that Jesus is God himself. And at the beginning of this holy week, he pronounces himself to be God, he proclaims to be God, and at the end of the holy week, he demonstrates himself to be God in his death and resurrection. This is no ordinary king. This is God in the flesh. And this is the king that we need, the eternal uncreated God who is above all things. And secondly, what he pronounces himself to be and what we see in answering our question, who is this king? Not only is he a divine king, he is a personal king. Historically, when you look at royal families and kings, most of them are removed from reality or they're removed from their subjects. That they are not intimately involved in the lives of their people. They are not up to date on people's concerns or struggles or what people's dreams and desires. And you can only know those things if you are intimately involved in people's lives. And most kings and queens and royal families are not. Just try and walk into Buckingham Palace. You're not going to be allowed in. The king and the queen are removed from the realities of normal day people's lives. But Jesus is no ordinary king. Jesus is a personal king. He is a king that comes to be with his people, not separated from them. Verse 5, quoting from Zechariah, a prophecy about who this king would be, Matthew in verse 5 says, Behold, your king is coming to you. It's just wonderful wording, your king. Just note this morning that the personal intimacy of the use of the word, the personal nature of this king, he's yours. In a sense that the God of all creation, this divine king, you can have all of who he is. You can have all of what he brings. You can have his focus, his attention, his power, his joy, his purpose, his life. That he comes for, and you can have all that he is. It's personal, it's relational, and it's beautiful. 
And it says, not only can you, he's yours, it says that he comes for you. And the, the direct translation is, it's like your king comes for you, means he comes for your benefit. And that's what we need to hear this morning. That's what we need to impose in our circumstance right now. Is not only do we have a king that is ours, that is yours, personally invested in you, that you can have all of him, but that he's also come for your good, for your benefit, for your salvation. He personally knows you. He loves you. He's interested in you. He comes to lay down his life for you. He comes to set you free from the dominion of this world that you find yourself in. And as you're sitting at home, you need to know that you have a personal king who is God himself, who is yours. And he comes for your good and for your purpose and for your benefit. And Israel had kings before them who didn't work for their personal good or for their benefit. They had harsh kings. And Zechariah has prophesied in this passage here that there would be this king, this personal king, your king, who would come for you. And their benefit is to set them free. And what Israel needs, they need a king who comes to liberate them. It's not a political liberation. It might not even be a circumstantial change to their lives. But they need a personal king who knows them, who understands them, and comes to serve them and to save them in a personal and intimate way. And we need this morning a king who knows you, who knows your heart, who knows your struggles morning, who knows your son, he knows your fear, he knows your circumstance, and he has come and he's with you this morning. And he's willing and he's able to work for your benefit and for your good, to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring ultimately salvation. This is the king that we need. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is a sovereign king. When he enters the city on Palm Sunday, he's fulfilling a multitude of prophecies that have been made centuries before. He's orchestrating a number of events, bringing them all together and demonstrating to the Jewish people and the religious leaders that he is the Messiah. All the things that have been said, all the things that point towards him, he fulfills to demonstrate that he is in control of everything. No human would have been able to do all of this. From finding of the donkeys, to entering into Jerusalem on a cult, to the people shouting Hosanna, to his betrayal, to his arrest, to his death, crucifixion, to his resurrection. This is all done in the fulfillment of scriptures, demonstrating that there is this sovereign God in control of everything, bringing all these things together in fulfillment of what he said would happen. And this is the uniform picture we have when we bring together all the accounts of the Gospels, that Jesus is not a helpless victim. Jesus is not taken by surprise. No one is taking his life. But Jesus is coming. He's laying down his life on his own initiative, on his own terms, in his own way, in the fulfillment of what was said in the Scriptures. He is a sovereign king. Knowing all things. In control of everything. Working all these things according to his purpose. Right down to a simple donkey. 
And this is the kingdom we need this morning. In a world full of uncertainty, in a world that seems to be spinning out of control, in a world that would leave us feeling fearful, we need to know who's in charge. We need to know who's in control. And here this morning on Palm Sunday, who is this king? Jesus is the sovereign king. God himself, personally knowing and caring and loving you, working for your good, and he is in control of everything from the beginning to the end. That you might rest with peace this morning, or you might place your faith afresh in the sovereign God of all creation. That nothing has fallen outside of his control. We may not understand why. We know that sin is devastating and the effects of creation are feeling it. But we have this promise that he's in control and he's working it all out. That he will fully and finally, in his good time, bring this all to completion. And all things will be made new in a new kingdom with him as king. Jesus is a sovereign king. And we might rest this morning and rejoice in this truth that he is in control. And lastly, we see that Jesus is a Savior King. Uh, Matthew is quoting here from Zechariah 9 verse 9 when he says, See your King comes for you righteous. And then he says, having salvation. And in verse 9 in the Matthew 21 account here, it says, The people shout Hosanna. Hosanna means, is a please save us. That they're, they're crying out for salvation. And that is what we need. And Jesus is the Savior King, as it says, He's the righteous King who comes for you, bringing salvation. They need salvation. We don't need, as I said before, a change of circumstance. He comes to save us from the cause of our circumstances. And the people have been waiting for this Messiah, this promised Deliverer, who would liberate them from the from Roman rule as they would see it. But he doesn't come primarily for the external circumstances and temporal setups and systems. No, he comes to deliver them from the eternal, deadly slavery that we have of sin. It's interesting when in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph to announce to him what's going to happen at the birth of Jesus, he says this, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means he who saves. He comes, the one who is anointed, the Messiah, the chosen one, comes to save us from our sins. And that is good news that we need to know this morning. There is no other king. There is no other system. There is no government. There is no process. There is no reform. There is no nothing that can resolve the deepest issue of humanity and creation that has been set loose and that wrecks havoc upon us in our mortal beings, which is sin. And Jesus here has been prophesied as the Savior King. The one who comes to save us from our sins. And we in humanity and creation have rebelled against God, disobeyed His law, and have separated ourselves from the giver of life. And Jesus is the Savior. He is the source of life who comes to take the consequences, the wrath of God's judgment on our sin upon Himself, that we might receive His life 
that we might be reconciled back to God, saved and delivered from the eternal damnation that we are facing. And this is Easter. This is what we're looking forward to at Easter. This is the message of Easter, is that we as humanity and creation, we are lost. We are without hope as a result of our sin. But the Savior comes to take our place for our sins, that we might be saved and set free. The root of the struggle of the people of Israel, their despair, their pain, their suffering, their rejection, the corruption, the abuse, the manipulation, is all rooted in sin. And that which stands behind all evil and brokenness is sin. And unless it is removed, we will remain enslaved. We will remain under its oppression. And we can move our circumstances and our locations around the chessboard of life as much as we want. We will never find the comfort that we long for and think we need. And there is no earthly king that can do this. Except God himself, the divine king in the flesh, Jesus himself. So they ask the question then, who is this? Who is this king? And simply the answer is, he is the divine son of God who is in the flesh, reigning and ruling sovereignly over all things, bringing about his good purposes for our benefit and our good by humbly laying down his life in our place for our sins, by living the perfect, righteous life, acceptable to God, thus making peace with the Father. This King is Jesus, the Divine King, the Sovereign King, the Personal King, and the Savior King. And right now, this morning, your life has a location, your life has a circumstance, your life has a King, and your life has a presence in a Kingdom. And the good news is, that there is a new king, King Jesus, who comes to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life and light. And that we might embrace him in all his fullness. And all that's going on around us is God at work. And part of his purpose in this tragedy that we're experiencing is to shake us and to awake us to the depths of our need, our fragility, our finiteness. To be lifting our eyes up to the one who can truly save and set free. So what should we do this Palm Sunday? Or what do you do for a king? You surrender. You kneel down and you worship. And this morning I would encourage you then to take this time to worship. To give thanks and praise and worship the king that is truly worshipped. There is truly one that could and should be worshipped. And that we would submit ourselves to his divine kingship, his control, his law, his way, that we might truly be set free. And that we could come through this moment, we could celebrate this Easter time with great faith and with great hope and with great assurance that we could say, Hosanna in the highest, as they sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That we will respond with worthy manner to a worthy King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful truth this morning that you are the King that has come for us. 
that we are finding ourselves in situations and circumstances and locations that are rattling us, that are shaking us, that are causing us to see our fragility, the realization that we're no longer, we're not in control. And the things that we may have placed our faith and hope in for purpose and meaning and satisfaction and joy are being stripped away from us. And in your grace and in your sovereignty and your spirit this morning, would you help us to see afresh that our hope and our future is found in you. And that you have come. And as we ask, who is this? That we might hear the answer this morning. That you are the King. The Divine King. You are the Sovereign King. You are this personal King. The Saviour. 